We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, everyone. Before we get started, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all of this for only $15 a month. That's the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports podcasting experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com forward slash join. bwhustle.com forward slash join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more. But that's bwhustle.com slash join. Arsenal podcast will be struggling to compartmentalize and analyze the city game. This podcast solves the problem by talking exclusively about Tottenham's loss to West Ham. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, the Black Man Twitter, Yankee Gunner. It's hard to break down the city game. They're really good. We're not really in their league. Is a tame defeat ever acceptable? Or maybe it's glorious defeat? Or maybe it just doesn't mean anything? You know what? To heck with that. Let's just talk about Tottenham being shit. Because they are. What do, what do we think of Tottenham? Shit. What did Tottenham play like? Shit. Now, I realize this is a little bit rich. 
on a season when Tottenham sit ninth in the table and we still somehow manage not to be above them. But I think we can derive pleasure from the schadenfreude of the Tottenham situation, and I will attempt to do so. But reading here in the fine print, it does say we are obligated to talk about Arsenal and the Arsenal game and the Arsenal performances and all of that nonsense. So, unfortunately, we will have to delay the schadenfreude and uh, and talk about Arsenal. And here to do it with me is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woohoo! Clive's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Tim's on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. I want to say a special thank you to the patrons who got in my mentions to let me know how they felt about my performance on the Instant Reaction Pod, uh, and to let you know that I will attempt to to elevate that to performance art in this podcast episode uh, in an effort to be fully uh, ostracized by the Arsenal community to whatever extent possible. I have to level with you guys. I do not have strong feelings about this game, and I realize that is a bad way to set up a podcast that is a post-match podcast about a specific game, but... I couldn't feel anything really strongly about it. City have a way of beating you and taking the heat out of the game and taking the contest out of the game that makes the game stop feeling like it matters in some ways. And maybe that in and of itself is bad, that we are at a level where it doesn't matter. But Tim, I mean, you know, we played Pep Guardiola's Barcelona teams when they were in their pomp with Arsenal sides that were Champions League teams and routinely had 60-65% possession. And we'd play Barcelona and have 30% possession. And it just kind of felt like, oh, well, what can you do? And there is a bit of that feeling against City now. Now, you might say that this City team isn't as good as that Barca team. Well, might be close, but we're nowhere near that as good as that Arsenal team. So, I don't know. I mean, before we actually get into the game itself, how do you find analyzing this kind of performance, this kind of loss, this sort of feeling of inevitability? Orbino had some stats going out that we, we have gifted City first 15-minute or earlier goals, I think in like six of our last seven games against them or more. So... Do you have, mm. do you have, are you able to just sort of summarize how you, you think about and think it might be helpful to think about playing against City in the context of our wider attempt to improve and continue an upward trajectory? Yeah, I so I, I still don't really know how to feel feel about it. And I, I still find it really difficult to analyze or consider this game in isolation because, uh, because City are so good. I mean, we, we didn't lay a glove on them. Um, and because the thing is, I don't know how much of the baggage I take into this game is is actually worth anything. I still have big problems with the way we attack for all of the improvement we've seen in recent weeks. I think we've improved from a very low bar and we're still probably like upper mid table in terms of creativity, which is still not good enough. It's just a lot better than we were doing. And so, and, and you know, and I, I, I still have, um, I think um, Adrian Clark uh, came out with a, like a really good stat as well um, on the Totally Football Show today, which was in like Arsenal have gone one nil down eleven times this season, and they've lost nine of those games. Um, and he was talking about, and I completely agree. And he articulated something I've been thinking and feeling for a while that he he described it as Arteta needs to understand how to create a gear change in a game. Um, like either make a change, whether that be a substitution or a tactical change that changes something in the game that changes the temperature of the game, the impetus, like it's all very, um, it's all very samey. You know, we usually have like a bit of a boost in the first 15 minutes of the second half, maybe straight after the team talk. But one of the reasons we don't really put teams to the sword in the last 20 minutes is because we just keep doing the same thing that we've done for the previous 70 minutes. And the last 20 minutes of a game, for me, if you're still in it, is almost a separate game. Um, and and that is kind of relevant here because we, we hung in there by hook or by crook. 
until about the 70th minute, just like we did in the away game, but just like the away game, we didn't actually do anything. But it's very difficult, and, and I think that's a really valid and big criticism of Arteta and Arsenal this season. They haven't been able to do that. They weren't able to do it in this game, but then you kind of look at City and the, the fact they keep scoring so early kind of tells you they can score whenever they want against us. And you always had that feeling in this game that they could they could find another gear and score again if they wanted to. They hit absolute top gear for the first 10 minutes and we could have been 3-0 down. And then they kind of eased off a little bit. And you had the feeling they could do that throughout the game. But then you kind of look at City's recent record. I mean, they, not only have they won 18 in a row, they've conceded six goals in that time. You know, six, that, that is that is like unreal <laughs> defensive. You know, that's that's like peak George Graham's Arsenal. That is, you are not getting through. And we only had one shot on target. And I think it was Tierney from about 30 yards in the first half. Like, so, so on one hand, you look at it and think, well, did we really have a go in the last 20 minutes? And then you kind of think, well, maybe we really tried, but it's just not possible against this City side. Like no one has a go at this City side because they can't, they can't get close to them. So I I think in the long run, I will completely compartmentalise this game. I'll forget it quickly. Like even if my criticisms of Arsenal this season, I think have kind of happened in this game, I'm happy to discount them from the record for this game just because I think they've happened so so often that I you, you know I don't really need to submit this as evidence basically. I I guess it's not quite inadmissible but I think it's quite close and obviously how we feel about that like I don't like the feeling of that I definitely don't but at the same time not liking the feeling of something doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah and and to be clear if you are a person who enjoys football because it fuels you with raw emotion, that's fine. Like sometimes this pod is about stats and analytics and squad building and, and the philosophies. And I get that sometimes I definitely go too far down that lane. I also like to occasionally lean into the heat of an emotional feeling. It's one of the reasons the instant reaction pods became a thing for patrons because I wanted a zone where a little emotional reaction was a safe place to do it, right? Because I don't want it to be purely cold analysis. If you feel angry and frustrated that Arsenal fans and Arsenal as a club would accept a tame 1-0 victory where we were held at arm's length by the bully, that is entirely fair. I just can't get there. I think the reality is if you can't look at that Man City side and accept that they are much better than us, you know, especially when we had some key performers missing, it is what it is. We beat them in the FA Cup semifinal. So it's not like we can't ever do it, but they are the goal we would aspire to and we are a long way off it. Um, and I, I just, I can't help it. Look, you can look at the table since Christmas and we are fifth in that table. If the Wolves game hadn't really been ripped from us, it's better than that. So, you know, I mean, yeah, the Villa game we lost, I also think we're decent in that. I know people don't agree. But so overall, you have to be balanced. And I think the balanced view is that we are better than we were. But if you cannot compartmentalize in that way I understand that too Clive I think what's interesting here is what Arteta was trying to do these Pep and Arteta battles have been highly tactical and I have to admit at times they kind of exceed my ability to look at the pitch and understand what they're trying to achieve it almost looked like we were just man marking everybody and running around following man on man like literally man on man Pep was glowing uh, in his post-match appraisal of how Arteta set up for this match giving away a goal so early Stinks in a way because it undermines your ability to to credit an attack a, 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 a tactical approach, 
right? Yeah. Because you're behind so early that what you're doing just looks like you're tamely accepting defeat. But set aside the fact that we were behind early. What do you think Arteta was trying to do tactically in this game that might have been a little different than what we've been doing for the for the last six, seven games or so? Uh, I think um, this is a hard game to sort judge. I definitely think that. Obviously, I listened to the instant reaction and you can see people online when the game was going on. What we tend to do as fans is we try to crystallize our our thoughts about the game into individual performances. And I was looking at certain individuals getting criticized, whether it was tongue in cheek or not. And I was thinking, nah, nah, I'm not having that. Let me have a look today. Let me watch the whole game again. Did you which, call which, me? Which, which <laughs> I did. <laughs> which, which I did, right? And I said, I'm not having that. So basically. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and mute Paul so you can continue. Don't worry about it. Go ahead, Clive. You're good. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I thought Paul was talking to me there for a second. And so, so basically, uh, there was a lot of man-on-man, similar to the, Le- the Leeds game, actually. But in this game, we didn't win our duels in the same way. So you, you look at the game and you think, okay, what are we trying to be? And I, 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 I had to look at the City stuff today. I went online to look at the City stuff. And they saw this as one of their hardest games of the 18 that they've won on the bounce. Quite easily the hardest game. Because they found us hard to play through. And it's not an emotion that any of us have. Would that be fair? Right, mm-hmm. so... And they felt that, listen to this for first world problems, they felt that Kevin De Bruyne and Gundogan came back in after they missed a game or two, interrupted their flow, and slowed them down. Everyone looks at a game slightly differently and they were really quite impressed at how we blocked them off one-on-ones. And we look at the game thinking, oh my God, can we keep this down to three? When they pinged it over T in his head in the first, in the first few minutes and... If you look at the game and ask yourself, what are we trying to do? And this is where the coaches know each other so well. So remember I said to you on the instant reaction earlier, watch a game for the first five minutes, and then you'll see what's really happening. Ping, straight over T in his head. Mara's on the touchline, try to get him isolated, receives it one touch, sprint inside, get him into his box so he can create a cross. That happened in the first 30 seconds. A minute or so later, it happened. Happened seven times in the first 10 minutes. That tells you, if you're watching, they really fear Tierney's ability to get up and down that line and connect with Saka and connect with Aubameyang. So let's force them back. Let's focus on that side early on and let's run their legs out. And it sort of worked. In fact, they should have had two goals, a deflected shot behind when it hit Tierney. That just should be 2-0 and they're jogging through the game. But we kept it to one. And then we started to progress to our left-hand side. We started to pick on Cancelo and we started getting on that side. And actually, we built up some really nice stuff. Now, I've watched this game today, and I know the result. I'm thinking, this is actually not too bad. And so I think from a tactical point of view, when I walked into this game, I'm thinking, what did I expect to come out of it? Because mm. let's, not, let's not mess about. This is a state-run team. They've got, <laughs> they've got multiple players around 40, 50, 60 million pound mark. And we have got two centre-backs that have... No, holding two million and Pablo Marie anywhere between three and twelve, depending on who you believe had the deal, right? So, so basically, it's a different league we're playing against, right? So, I can accept what's actually happened. So, for me, when I looked at this game, I thought, okay, this is opportunity to see the next level. This opportunity to see what we need to do as a club to upgrade to get closer. And there were some players that had some really decent performances within the construct of what was allowed in this game. Mm particularly under pressure on the ball and being released valves to other players, it wasn't a game for looking at directional passes like Benfica was, who are not as good as us, who haven't got the budget. So, so can I just ask you, are you are you subtly 
giving a defense of Muhammad El Nenny's backward passing? Just just be honest with us. <laughs> well, uh, they're, they're, that's, a, that's a very good example of what people do when they watch a game mm. and they don't like what they see going one direction. Muhammad El Nenny's role is to be a release valve, to support people who are being pressed. Man City's game plan is to have the ball there five seconds where they pressure the man in possession, then they drop away slightly to the five-second rule. Bang, 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 at the ball. And Mohamed Elneny's job and Shaka's job is to be there for that person in possession and then to get three passes. The game retained, first three. And he, he don't, I don't care where those passes go. Could you notice how many backward passes we played and just pass to each other? They're trying to create rest periods to take the temperature out of the game. It's not the day for a radar. It's the day for pass accuracy. Mm. Now, the situation, the real issue is around our number 11 and our number 14 in that central zone, how they couldn't retain the ball and still played the leads way, which was one touch. We actually need to get it, take a foul, don't mind being kicked, get the game, create different momentums in stages. We tried to play the leads way. We didn't really progress up the pitch. So the day, this day was all about progression. Once we had calm possession, our progression was inaccurate, poor decision, didn't protect it. That was the key thing in the day where we need to improve. We get to the last court, last third, need to be much better in our efficiency and decisions. And I, I tell you now, you're not going to like it, but Saka, lots of bad decisions. Lots of bad decisions, oh, yeah. despite him being our best player. When it counted, that needs to improve. And it feels harder to take in this game because we know we're not getting there very often. Do you know what I mean? So we really focus on it. But actually, I just think it's a very interesting tactical game. A game which we will learn so much from and we'll take into the next game, hopefully, and it'll be a feel, it'll feel a lot easier. Sometimes when you play a really good side and you go to another team, you take a lot of the good things that you've learned and it should be a lot easier if you've got the energy in the legs. So I know we got beat, but I don't worry about being beat by this team. I'm far more concerned about Benfica, Wolves, Aston Villa, Everton, those teams, because we have the budgets to compare with those teams. We have the budgets to be better than those teams. We shouldn't be losing those games or drawing those games. That's the measure of this Arsenal team, not this day. Yeah, I, I think there's. Can a, I, um, yeah, please. Yeah, come back. Mm -hmm. I, I I just wanted to just to say one thing on the 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 Saka comment. I like I I think that's true enough. And and on the first goal, Saka's not really there. And and Arteta made a a point after the game. He said like because Arsenal kind of tried to go man for man, right? And Arteta said after the game that he got something wrong and he made a tweak. Um, and things got better after that. I I think the problem for Saka was he was detailed to pick up Cancelo, who is playing possibly the most tactically revolutionary <laughs> role um, in European football in the last 20 years where he is, he basically doesn't have any sort of position whatsoever. He just, he just goes. And that was kind of similar is. to the previous city game, right? Where yeah. uh, uh, Saka was tucked in as kind of a right center or left center mid. And he was basically out of possession following Cancelo around. And he yeah, seems to do a lot um, of that in this game. And because Cancelo is not just doing the fullback tucking into midfield stuff, he is doing more than that. Like yeah. he's out on the wing, he's in number ten. Like basically, he just goes wherever the ball is it's to like be a the free spare player. man. Yeah, yeah, like completely free. And and that that's that's a real like if you're marking that player, that is that is a really really difficult job, and it and it pulls you out of position a lot. And you think that's the, the reason goal. why Saka was put on the left instead yeah, of the right for this game because Pepe 
who I think has actually been excellent tracking back lately, wouldn't was not trusted with that job. I mean, Saka has played nominally as a defensive player, wing back at times. I mean, is that principally why you think was done? I think that's part of it, but it's not just that. It's to create a relationship with Tierney, who's a returning player from injury, create a known solid relationship with him, knowing that Bamiyang would be on that side. I think it was for us defensively and for us offensively overloading. And I'm afraid to say that what Arteta spoke to, as Tim was touching on there a little bit, was tactically wrong. As that ball travels over to Mares, as he's travelling, the first thing you do as that wide midfielder is you go and double up. You go and double up. He didn't get there. He didn't get there a couple of times, and eventually late in the game he got there a lot more often. He didn't double up. Mares didn't have to even beat Tierney. He attacks him at pace, whips it to the back's post. If you want to see an example of what should happen, just watch Raheem Sterling in this game, how he doubled up to stop Pepe coming inside and forced Pepe backwards. And so when people are judging player performances, look at how they're being impacted by the opposition. Because Mahrez didn't have the protection early in the game. Sorry, Tierney had protection early in the game, whereas Mahrez was attacking him. Whereas on the other side, when Sterling was absolutely fantastic at getting back into support, um, Shinchenko, is that his name? Shinchenko on mm-hmm. that side. And I think he, you watch the game, he's doubling up was tremendous. And I think it's just, I want to go back to player judgment a little bit. I think it's really hard when people judge these players based on what they do with their feet and how it leaves their feet without recognizing what the opposition are doing to stop them. Sure, fair enough. And the only thing I would say, like with respect to the Elneny comment, I, I get you what his role is. But like if you want to get to the point where you're beating teams like City or, or competing toe to toe with them, then that player has to be Thomas Party, and instead of just regain, retain, it has to be regain, retain, go forward, right? He has to have the ability to quickly shift and find the space in behind City because yeah. if you ever want to hurt them, you got you got to get that ball past that initial pressure quickly. And if you do, there's vulnerability there. Very few teams do it effectively. I'm not saying it's easy, but that's where having more quality helps. And by the way, full credit to Saka, uh, to Saka, to Shaka, who did it a bit. I, I think another great performance. And you know, Tremendous. you talk about Saka. You know, what will be lost in this game is we didn't have big chances, but we had dangerous moves that should have produced big chances. And I feel like a microcosm of our season of a sort, and I'm going to I'm gonna skip ahead in the run a little bit here, Paul, to just come to this since we're sort of talking about it, was, was failing to take advantage of those. There was one where Saka's on the counter up the left-hand side. Aubameyang puts on a burst of pace that's probably the, the best burst we've seen from him all season, steaming through the middle to get into a position where the the... Uh, ball in behind is on. Meanwhile, Pepe's in acres of space on the right. Ultimately, Saka chooses Pepe, which is probably the easier pass, but he gets it wrong. Missed opportunity. There's one where Shaka beautifully on the slant slips a ball between the lines to Saka. Saka plays it out to Tierney. Tierney in spectacular crossing position from the left could carry it into the box, could play it, you know, back to the penalty spot and hits it first time into Rosette beyond the near post of the goal. I mean, Tierney incredibly rusty with his crossing on the day. So, I mean, Paul, is, is that sort of a microcosm of our season in a sense, which is this is a team that has started to develop the ability to create more hurtful moves and even did it at times in this game, but just too often. And especially on this day when you, you know, you're not going to get a lot of chance and you have to, you have to execute fails to execute in those, in those promising positions. Um, it's a, certainly a microcosm of most of our season. I think we've been a lot better recently and uh, toothpaste tube and all that shit, partly because we spent, been more developed in where we're playing our game and this game was kind of i think we're significantly better at this point but because you're playing against city 
we were playing from a lot deeper trying to do it. And, and so our good play and all that good combination stuff got us to a point where we're like, oh, shit, it, it got us to the point in the pitch where we're normally starting that stuff from. That's that's your reward, not a kind of intricate play in the box and a shot. It's, uh, oh, great, we're, we're finally into the time, final third. And now we have to do that whole other thing against a very strong city defense, which, um, uh, you know, Gary Neville gave... Diaz, man of the match on the day. So they were doing something right at the back there beyond outplaying us at, uh, on the other end. And then on the other hand, they're playing four players to press Leno and the guys, uh, our back line, uh, to stop us getting out. And they're, they're all over us. So I think we just really, really struggled to play it out. But we kind of did manfully work through it. And as the first half went on, uh, we found ways through around the sides, through the middle. Um, and, be, you know, we had a good 10, 15 minutes, especially towards the end of the first half, where we seemed to be beginning to crack the code of playing out. But it took us so much effort and they were still so ready for us at the back that that just brought us on to the next problem, kind of bringing us back two months of what do we do now that we got on into the final third. And, yeah, we were way too sloppy in the final third, I think. Aubameyang and Odegaard just gave it away way too cheaply when it came upfield to help build the play. Uh, though when we got into the final third, there were just plenty of uh, sloppy, poor decisions generally um, across the board. And I, I don't know what the real reason for that is, except for we struggled so hard to get up there. When we got up there, they were they were still still reasonably well set up. Mm. Um. And I think we struggled. So I don't really think the reason I, it could be taken as a as a microcosm of the season. But I don't think that's where we're at. I think we're significantly further on. It's just kind of coincidental. We're seeing some of the same challenges. Sure, sure. But wouldn't you say, I mean, like, for example, against Benfica, we did create the chances. So maybe, maybe that's a bad example. But like you could say in Wolves, in the Wolves game, we played great, but probably, you know, didn't turn our good moves into the kind of goals we needed it. Same with Aston Villa played really well. And at times still managed to lose one nil because we weren't converting some of that dominance into chances and goals. And in this game, there was no dominance, but there were, I mean, after about 10 or 15 minutes, we were well in the game. In my opinion, the second half soporific mess where very little happened, but the second half of the first half, I think was punctuated by moments where Arsenal had opportunities and you know, and maybe it's a case maybe, of with, but yeah, scoring ahead, is hard though. I mean, uh, City I scored one. how hard can it be? <laughs> and created lots of chances. You know, it's just, so yeah, maybe, but I just think we're, we're getting a lot better in the final third. Our decision-making is better. And we just struggled so hard to get into the final third in this game. I mean, there was, you could argue there was some tiredness and some sloppiness in some of the players. Uh, I, I do want to say on the Saka thing, I, I might diverge a little bit from Clive's assessment of Saka. I'm very much in the Tim camp. I don't think Saka's job at all was to cover the left back in this game because the reaction to the times when Tierney was isolated, as as Clive points out with Mares, was not to look at Saka and berate him and, and like... It's not like this was one lapse and then every other time he learned his lesson and he was running back there at speed. He wasn't. He was staying in midfield. He was there for the counter up, upfield when we were out of possession. In, when they, when we were out of possession, 
sorry, in possession and trying to get up the field. And when we were out of possession, he was looking at Cancelo and occasionally other players. There. And yeah, he did a bit of covering back, but it seemed much more that they were going to cover that with Chaka and Mari. And that was the plan. And it might seem like a really dangerous plan, but it's the old death by bongo bongo. Mm. And uh, Arteta decided he didn't want to have 10 people behind the ball just locked in there. And he moved his chips into the table and said, all right, I'm going to keep some players upfield here. We're not spending the whole fucking I, I game. I agree with that. Uh, see, yeah. I see. I will tell you, Paul, the one thing I will say is if you want to be upset about tame losses, there was a game, I want to say it was against Liverpool, where we just bedded in. We were in our defensive third the whole game. We didn't even have an outlet. We weren't playing counterattacking football. We were just bedded in. Th- this game, we were determined, I think, to try to be a participant in this game, you know, and, to, and, and we and, were. And like, I think the, the question to Tim is really interesting. What was the approach in this game? I think this one isn't even a typical big game. This is Pep versus Arteta. Mm. And it, it's a, a biannual checkpoint of how are we doing and how we play football. And it's death by bongo bongo. I know I'm going to lose to Pep. Uh, but I want to see, I want us to play and I want to demonstrate to our team and to the footballing community how far we've evolved. And if we lose 1-0 or 2-0, that's what it's going to be. Yeah, look, but we'll I lose be, this way. I want to be careful and not say we were like, this was heroic failure. I, I, I think this falls short of, wow, we were good and, and went toe-to-toe with City. Like, we, we were... No. Beaten pretty well and very tame in the second half, but we had we had more involvement in the game than I've seen in in some other big games of similar caliber. Clive, uh, one yeah. more thought on this before we maybe move on to yeah. another topic. One, Clive, <laughs> lacerate me. Yeah, Jeremy, Jeremy, Jeremy. I, I think I think you know you can be we we can both be right on this one. I think Saka was definitely had to stay interested with Cancelo on that side, and he wasn't as high, and Aubameyang sneaked in behind him. But I'm telling you, as a ball travels that distance on a diagonal and you see your fullback isolated, your wide player's job is to get back in and double up. So not saying that's his job for the game or his detail for the game, but in that scenario, they are playing into our strength and we are trying to play into their strength. To their strength is that number two, is it Cancelo number two? (laughs) Well, you know, that number two type player who plays anywhere and our strength is our left-hand side. So they played into it. And we want to play into our strength. And that is a key tactic of a coach. So as that ball's travelling on a diagonal, not all the time, Paul, you shouldn't be tucked in and around him in his pocket. But when it's a long-distance diagonal, you've got time to travel. And they should both travel out there. And that's what should happen in the game. It's just, it just didn't happen in this scenario. And I think mm. Arteta touched on it without naming names. He didn't want to do that. He said it was a tactical issue early in the game. And I'll tell you, that was it. In the box, Anyone can see what went wrong in the box, right? You know, <laughs> shoulders wrong way around, not touch tight. I'm not going. I'm not going there, right? Yeah, I'm and I think Tierney. I, I know the the broadcaster here was particularly keen to call it out. When actually, I think it was Lee Dixon, so he, he knows a thing or two about this. But he felt that Tierney was too square, and as a result, he couldn't deny the cross, and he wasn't tight enough. And I mean, I, I know it's absolutely. Um, a no-go right now to criticize Tierney. Look, he's just back from injury. He looks rusty. And I, th- I think he was rusty in this yeah, game, and it's understandable. Right, but... so he got up to speed really quick here. Yeah, first mm-hmm. touch, perfect. Bang, up to speed. Straight away, you're backing away now. You're backing away. You're back. You're trying to hold him up, but you can't. He's coming straight at you, straight at you. Stop, change the angle slightly, shift, clip. But yeah. his trick was first touch, 
quick acceleration into his run. So what Tierney has to do is travel quicker, get the distance closer as the ball's travelling. I've got to say, that Diag was unbelievable. Mm. Not a pass that we've got in our team, that's for sure. Yeah, really. really. I mean, the the problem with, with City is they pose so many problems that if you target a specific problem or a specific uh, area that you want to take away from them, what you leave them can still kill you. Um, Tim, you know, certainly feel free to, to talk about the, the fine margins and the way we maybe missed opportunities, but I, I think I'd like to focus on the right-hand side for, for a bit here because mm-hmm. while there were missed opportunities that came from the left, in part to Tierney's crossing, in part to sack on a couple of counterattacks, not getting it quite right, um, there was basically nothing that, that came from the right-hand side. Um, you know, I, I think Odegaard who didn't have his best day, was also ignored quite frequently because obviously Elneny's going to struggle to get it to him. Uh, Bellerin couldn't kick the ball with either foot. It was a very bizarre performance from him that, while I acknowledge he hasn't been great lately, this was next-level disastrous at times. And then, you know, Pepe just wasn't in the game. And and Pepe's rapport with Bellerin was non-existent. It certainly begs the question why he was put on the right. Um, You know, we've touched on maybe a reason for that already. But do you have thoughts on just the the complete failure of the right-hand side to progress the ball, connect with one another, play with quality, evince any confidence or or capability to to hurt City. I mean, it was it it was really kind of hard to watch that side of the pitch operate for most of the game. Yeah, and and it's been a problem all season, hasn't it? Really, I mean, Saka is the only player that has played convincingly there. Um, either a, a right fullback or right wing. Um, Willian struggled there. Pepe struggled there. Um, you know, Bellerin, I, I'm personally, my, I know we're coming on to him later. I think Bellerin's been up and down. I think there's been some bad, some good. Um, but Saka is the only player who's consistently played there well. I, I think there are a few things going on. I think, first of all, um, you know, the the uh, the right-sided, well, I say the right-sided central midfielder was Elneny. Really, he was dropping into the back three. That was his job in this game. Um, so we Did he didn't do that more really second have half? That. Was he doing it all game? I mean, maybe I just didn't see it as clearly in the first half. Certainly, it felt like a second half adjustment. doing it in the first half at yeah. times, but okay. he wasn't there all the time, but he definitely yeah. dropped in between the two center backs. Because we switched to yeah. a back three for good at one point in the second half, yeah. Yeah, he was definitely doing it in the first half. So we didn't really have that right-sided central midfielder, um, you know, providing that link-up. But Bellerin, and and we didn't have Smith-Rowe as well, and he's really good at kind of drifting over to that flank, particularly when Saka's there and providing a bit of an outball. But but really, I think the biggest thing is that Bellerin and Pepe just don't go together. And the reason I don't think they go together is because they they attack the same space. I don't think that they both want to attack the same space. I think Pepe likes that inside channel and Bellerin is told to attack that inside channel or to cover, rather to cover that inside channel to protect us against counter-attacks. So Bellerin is not asked to be out on the touchline. He is asked to be more in the half space as a, as a kind of, as a kind of cover if we get counter-attacked. So basically we've got Bellerin and Pepe playing in the same space. So what was happening like, um, a few months ago was that Pepe was the one who was kind of shoved out on the touchline and that didn't work. And now you've just got a situation where Bellerin and Pepe are both in that channel together and neither one of them is going wide and creating that kind of that overload. Um, they're both just 
kind of in the same space. And what Pepe really needs, I think, is a right back who who kind of comes up from wide. But and, and it's not that Bellerin is not capable of doing that. It's that he is specifically asked, in my view, not to do that. So essentially, I don't think we can play Pepe on the right. I just don't think we can with what the right back, whoever that right back is, is asked to do. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And I think it can be true that Bellerin has been given a job, a specific job, that undermines a little bit of what Pepe wants to do and occasionally gets in his way. And also true that whatever the job, Bellerin just had his boots on backwards in this game. You <laughs> like that he he there was one point where he kind of just kicked it into touch under no pressure. He just couldn't couldn't control it. I mean, I think you, you know sometimes a player looks bad because the instruction they've been given doesn't work, and as a result, they look like they're having an off day. And some days they're just having an off day. And I think there's maybe a combination of those two things in this game. Clive, you have a thought on that? Yeah, it's about. It's about offensive distances, right? So if you want to say that Bellerin's told to invert, that's that's fine, right? But you don't have to carry the ball to the man you want to give the ball to and bring everybody with you. So what you have to do is to create offensive distances. You mustn't run past him too much because you're now putting pressure on him to have to keep the ball. So the only way he can do to make sure we keep the ball is go back. Right? So on occasions they make the same runs. And I just think the distances are not correct. There is no there's no synergy in their games, right? And for me, I like my attackers to be in attacking situations that's going to benefit them. I want my defenders to be in defender situations that's going to benefit us going back the other way. And on this side, because our left-sided fullback goes really, really high, I prefer our right-sided fullback to just tuck in. That's fine, tucking in. But don't go past too early. Don't go past too early. Don't get too close too early. Try to do what Cancelo did with Mares. Stay away from the isolation. Try to create a one-on-one. Don't bring everybody with you. When you're bringing the ball out, because Bellerin's skill is driving for the middle third with the ball, I'm afraid this guy needs it earlier. He needs it earlier. And by the way, we can't see on the screen where Pepe's position is sometimes. You you feel as though, I, I want, I'm not going to sit here and say, he doesn't pass to him, because I also think Pepe needs to work harder to be passed too. You see what I mean? And I, I, I can't see it. If I was watching the game live, I'd be able to tell you. But I, I just can't see it on my screen. So, um, whereas Sacco, he seems to be more available. But is Pepe working hard enough? Or does he know when the ball's coming? Is he making the right runs? We just don't know. But you've got to create distance to the isolation player. Don't bring people over. And that, to me, is the issue. And when they get too close, there's no chance of them combining. The distances are too close. And then they're literally standing in the same area. And when they come, when he wants to come inside, he's in the space. I'll tell you, Elliot, if we ever do a rewatch this game in the second half, when he went to Shaka's feet, he looked out to the right wing, and Bellerin is literally in the passing lane, literally on the same line. Mm-hmm. Right? So he just has to just hold. Because I tell you now, Pepe will give it to him if he's on the burst, but he's up too early. He's too high, too early, either inside, too close. And he's just not creating a situation where he can be bounced off of. Because Bellerin on the move is playing the game he wants to play. But he gets there too soon. I can't stress that enough. He's there too soon. And Bellerin standing still playing football is not a good technical footballer. Bellerin on the hoof is a good footballer. But you're not creating situations, Bellerin, for yourself, for your own superpower. You're not creating enough because you're so keen to influence offensively 
you're there too soon, mate. You're creating distances issues. So that's the problem. He's actually uncovering his lack of technical ability and not not making sure people can see his acceleration, athleticism, and his drive because of where he's standing on the pitch. He's just high too early. Can I ask you a question? I mean, just real quick on this. It is clear to me, and I could be wrong, that Arteta wants one fullback to run the touchline and one fullback to come inside more and support in midfield, in part so that you can't get broken on as easily. He clearly feels yes, he clearly feels tyranny can run the touchline. And he's not giving yeah. that job to Bellerin. I have seen Bellerin be a good fullback. I mean, Bellerin was in the 2015 PFA team of the season. He was the only Arsenal player in it. Okay. Running yeah. the touchline. And you could say, well, that was when he had pace. Fair enough. We can debate that another time. Do you think it is as simple as Bellerin? for whatever qualities he has, just has not been able to really get it in the role that he's been given by Arteta. And, you know, because I look at look at what he does against Benfica. He should have the assist to Aubameyang. It's a tap-in. And it's sort of typical fullback play, right? He he overlaps. First Sabio phase. Slides first phase through. run. Yeah. yeah. On the first phase, Elliot. One touch, bang, round the side, and he's in. So it's first phase. It's not combination. So what you have, you have a... A bomber on one side in Tierney, he wants to go big, long runs, little tap off down the sides, even a little combination he creates himself, a little wall pass, off he goes, or he beats a man on his own. Bellerin is a first phase runner. He wants it. He, I've got to get there early so I can get on the back line so I can get it off a long pass. Right. So party's there, Bellerin looks a bit better. He goes a bit higher earlier and he can get in behind. And what you need is the, the right side, like Saka, that's when it's really worked. Saka's happy to drop in because he's more of a midfielder forward, if you see what I mean. So he drops in and he receives it. So for me, he, it's, it's actually, he's actually the wrong profile of fullback for this team at this moment in time. We've probably, the, I mean, people are going to laugh me when I say this, right? But Cedric can do it a bit better and Callum Chambers could do it. Because he wants to sit, he wants to sit in, he wants to support, he knows where he is. Bellerin is a, is a what's the word I'm looking for? Um, he's just a he's just a Duracell buddy type player. I'm on the move, I'm on the move, I'm on the move. I wish you need a bit of calmness, composure to create build-up. But he's so much a progressive runner, he just goes. And I mm. just want him to calm down because he's not showing the best of himself. And that's what I would say to you as a coach. You're not showing the best of yourself. You're putting yourself in a situation where you're too close to your winger. You're receiving the ball too many times, standing still because you got there too early. If you time it right, you're on the hoof. Look at Tierney. How many times has he received the ball and he's on the sprint? That's timing. That's timing of arrival. And when he gets it right, he looks a good player. He's getting it wrong too often. Yeah. All right. So... Let me just say this real quick. I can get this done in hopefully 90 seconds. Give me two minutes. Hector Bellerin is playing very badly right now. And it may be possible that right back is a position we need to upgrade. First of all, I think the idea that, oh, put Cedric there because he's better than Hector Bellerin. You know, you'll get what you what you ask for. I, I don't think Cedric is a better player than Hector Bellerin. That's just me. But I think the thing that, that's sort of weird to me is like, look, Hector Bellerin is playing badly. I cannot stress it enough. In my instant reaction, two matches ago, I had him as a stock falling. He's playing badly. Granted, had a goal against Leeds, should have had an assist against Benfica, but there is no denying it's it's a problem. What sort of is weird to me is the number of people, the volume of people saying, when are you going to bash Hector? Why won't you lay in Hector Bellerin? And, and you know, the, the, the hyperbole to which people have, have started to express their displeasure with him, the extent to which he is criticized and, you know, just wholesale dismissal of his quality and his talent. So I want to say something. 
I have never been shy about criticizing players. So this may, may sound weird coming from me, but I do think there is a question about like, are we allowed to have favorites anymore? Are we allowed to have players that we kind of want to protect and put an arm around? Are we allowed to have players we don't like? I mean, I didn't like Francis Coughlin. Clive, you, I, I don't want to put anything on you. It's not that you didn't like. It's that there were things about Aaron Ramsey's game you didn't love. We see different players different ways. I didn't like Olivier Giroud. No secret there, right? We have our favorites. I love Cesc Fabregas. Won't hear a negative word said about him. And I, as much as I like analytical football and, and criticizing performances when they deserve it and praising it when they deserve it, I also like having a player I love. I have a long sleeve Arsenal shirt with Hector Bellerin number two on the back. I love wearing it. I like the guy. And I, I just want to stress this, right? Like, we have players at the club who are loanies, who are mercenaries, who arrived late in their career. You can love those guys too. I love Aubameyang. Hector Bellerin joined us at 16 years old from La Masia. He learned English. He adopted London. He adopted the club. He became an Arsenal man quickly. We put him through 9,000 minutes before he was 22 years old, eventually breaking him down, rupturing his ACL because we just never let the guy sit down. He made that 2015 PFA team of the season. He won three FA Cups, starting all three finals. He is a player who has been very good for this club, who has stayed at this club, committed to a five-year deal at a time when he did have peak market value, could have gone back to Barcelona. Maybe that time is gone, but he committed. He sat down with fan groups. When Arsenal went to L.A. for their U.S. tour, he showed up at a, at a fan get-together in L.A., not as like a marketing thing or a photo opportunity. There were no handlers there. He just showed up, hung out with the guys for a bit, and took off. He's just a good person, a good player who is scuffling. And a guy who has been at Arsenal his entire life since he's 16. And so for me, he's a guy I want to back. He's a guy I want to back. And I get that that's incongruous with some of the other things I feel. But if there is a player in this team who's Mr. Arsenal right now, who for me gets a little bit more grace, not to say he's playing well when he's not, because he's not playing well. No one deserves to be lied about. I'll say that. But I do think if there's someone in this club that I want to have a little bit more patience with, a little bit more grace, who I'll just soften the blow a little bit and pull for him to make it, this is a guy. And I admit that that may color my analysis, and I'm sorry if it does, but I do think there is room for this discussion about, hey, you know, there are some players we we just like. And I'll admit, I, you know, I do. There are some players we don't like. And it may sometimes seem unfair. So I hope that we can all be human in that respect, that our analysis of their performance should be as objective as possible. He was bad. But that if there's someone we're going to have that patience with, someone we're going to just extend a little grace to, the kid who's been here since 16, who speaks English now better than some of the native English speakers, yeah, it's, it's, it's a guy, that's the guy. And I want to be clear, played terribly, might need to move on, might not be good enough for Arsenal. But I'm just talking about that sort of over-the-top wave of antipathy towards him that has, that has bled into the conversation, at least towards me. So I apologize if I'm just monologuing about social media here, but that this is a guy I want to root for. That's all I'm saying. So if you're coming to me and say, why won't you criticize Hector? Here it is. He stinks right now. But I, I do care about him, and, and I'm going to I'm gonna give him just that little extra grace. Paul, you want a, just a 30-second a, a hit on that before we move on? Because it's certainly not the thrust of the pod, but he's become a, a player that a lot of people have their eye on now, and, I, and understandably. Look at the video that ca that uh, encapsulates Hector as a good guy. If if anybody hasn't seen it, and if they have, here's a little reminder to warm your heart. It's the one where that girl, that young girl, comes to the game, and uh, she doesn't get his shirt for whatever reason, if I remember it right. And so Arsenal do this kind of media thing 
to get Hector to go over to her house and drop off her shirt. And she's, I don't know what age she is. She's probably like five or six and she's a brother and the parents are there and they let Hector in and the kids all really excited. Anyway, the short version of it is, um, I think they expected Hector to show up for 15 minutes. He's there <laughs> two hours later. They're basically asking him if he's, uh, Can he you leave? know, will he need something to eat? <laughs> uh, will he be staying for dinner? He's tucking them in. He's reading them books. I mean, clearly his his media engagement requirement was 15 minutes. He was there playing video games, watching TV with them. I think he made them breakfast in the morning. They couldn't get rid of the guy. He's just, a, you know... Uh, Lots of players would have done it with a good heart. This guy is like all in. So Yeah, and look, I, I get it. At the end of the day in football, you're going to love the players who play well and not love the players who play poorly. And unfortunately, he's playing poorly right now. So I, I'm not so naive as to get that. But, you know, we've had players like Patrick Vieira, who's an absolute club legend, who also like tried to get a move away from the club every summer. And, you know, we got a guy who threw the armband on the ground and we've got uh, a guy in Ashley Cole who crashed his car because he didn't get the contract he wanted and, and fucked off to Chelsea. And I mean, it's not always, it's not always straightforward. Is it like sometimes we, we have to make accommodations and that, that's all. I just, you know, I, we want to be analytical. We should be honest about performances, but I think there's still room to have guys we pull for. And if he's not a guy you pull for, by the way, that's also, you're entitled to it. I'm just telling you where I come from with this guy. Um, just my personal perspective. Let's um, let's do this. Because my opinions mostly stink, let's just sanitize the place a little bit. And the easiest way to sanitize, the easiest way to clean up stinky opinions is to spray something on them that smells better. In fact, I would submit that the easiest way to clean up anything that stinks is to spray something nice smelling on it. And maybe, just maybe that thing should be you know what it should be? I think you know what it should be. It should be the new cologne from Manscaped. Of course it should. It should be the new cologne from Manscaped. So right now, if you go to manscaped.com, put in promo code ArsenalVision, you save 20%. What you will get, of course, is still the opportunity to get the Lawnmower 3.0. I just assume everybody has it by now. But if you are beautifully shorn down there, you should also start smelling nice. And we don't want to waste water in honor of Hector Bellerin, right? We're thinking conservationally. So spray on some of the new Manscaped cologne because... It is fantastic. I have used it. I have uh, enjoyed using it. I want to read to you how they describe it because I would love to know how you get a job describing colognes. Um, this 50 milliliter spray cologne is even hypoallergenic, cruelty-free, dye-free, paraben-free, 100% vegan. So fits the topic we we're talking about. The signature scent introduces a light citrus burst before settling into the anchoring notes of vetiver and woodsy masculine finish. Um, God knows I could use a woodsy masculine finish. Wait a minute. That doesn't... Anyway. Um... What I will say is that Vetiver, as I was told by Tim Stillman, is uh, Tim Stillman said that this is in uh, a REM song. That's what it was. It was an REM song. So I'm a little bit off topic here, but the point is this is a fantastic cologne. Uh, it is my wife approved for whatever that means. And it, it comes a beautiful glass bottle. Looks great on the vanity. You should definitely get it. And you should go to ma uh, manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision, 20% off. You can get a whole kit. You can get Lawnmower 3.0. You can get the, the cologne. And when the, when the lockdowns end and we all run into the street and drop our drawers, everybody be like, gosh. Who's that beautiful smelling person with the perfectly shorn privates? And it'll be you. And that will be a happy day for everyone. Clive, do you think we covered it? Did we cover it sufficiently? 
do you think? Yes, just about. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, that's not too bad as some of the previous ones. Maybe, so. <laughs> really? All right. <laughs> maybe it's got I'm, the class seal of approval. Maybe I'm. Uh, maybe Sorry. after all this time, I'm getting used to it. The cringe, the cringe factor is not as big as it was. So well, well, done. well done. you know what? Challenge accepted, my friend. We'll see what I do on Friday's pod. Um, Tim, I should probably bring you back into the podcast since you've just been sitting here, you know, hopefully staring at your beautiful child or something. But <laughs> let, let's do this part real quick. It's sort of going back to the beginning, but but I think it deserves a mention. The lineup and the rotation issue. So, look, he rotated some players out who he clearly felt needed rest. Ceballos probably with an eye towards Thursday. Smith-Rowe as well. Notably did not do that for Aubameyang and Saka. Now, Oba was out for a bit, so maybe a little fresher. Saka leads us in minutes of all outfield players, and he plays a full 90. Um, without wanting to lead you in any direction, I think this is sort of a free swim opportunity for you to give me your thoughts on his rotation in this game, his rotation generally, and what I think may be the bigger issue, which is just 90 minutes for, you know, a couple of guys, and in particular, Bukai Saka. Yeah, sure. So the, his rotation for this game, I, I didn't really have a problem with. The only one of the five changes that came in that you'd say, oh, that's definitely a second string player is El Nene. Um, but I don't necessarily think that that was just about resting um, players. Like I, I do think that he wanted someone to do that specific tactical job um, and El Nene made sense for it. And, and you know, I think El Nene did his job, basically. It, it just depends what you think of, of that job. Like I think he, he almost certainly did what he was asked to do and that's why he stayed on for 86 minutes. Uh, you know, as for rotation overall, like I think, I think we cannot survive the rest of the season without gentle rotation. So two to three changes per match. Um, and we should be at a stage now where the squad is in a shape where we can do that and we can not talk about players being rested or the side being weakened or anything like that. And I don't think that's what happened here either. I think all of the players that genuinely weaken this team have basically gone now. Um, you know, like, like I say, maybe El Nenny, but uh, yeah, uh, it, in this specific game, I, I don't really think so. Um, the, the thing is with like focusing on the lineup for one game, I, I think um, looking at the selection is a little bit like XG in that it has limited value when you look at it on a one game basis. That's not to say it doesn't have value, but it has limited value and really it's it's more across the piece. So I guess that brings me on to like Saka and Abamyang. No problem with Abamyang playing 90 minutes. Like you said, he'd, he'd, he'd had a few games off. Um, we used him for about half an hour in the Europa League group stage, I believe. Uh, didn't use him in the Carabao Cup. He didn't start um, either of the FA Cup games, I think. Um, so he, you know, he should be reasonably fresh anyway. No problem there. Tierney, I really get the impression that they said from the get-go, you're going to play 90 minutes, you're going to huff and puff for the last half an hour, but we need to get you back in shape and that's how we're going to do it. So fine. As for Saka, I mean, that one, I mean, it, it's difficult, right? And we discussed this a lot on the instant reaction. It's difficult when you don't have like the data, for example, around like, I, I definitely think that we as fans worry about, um, rotation and resting a lot more than players and coaches do. I because we're we're naturally anxious people. It's the same reason, for example. <laughs> you can just call me by name. Come on. <laughs> no, no, I'm 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 like it too. I'm like it too. Mm. I mean, just listen to a stadium when a team passes out from the back. Like all coaches, well, pr pretty much all coaches insist on it now. But you listen to 
uh, fans in the stand, they don't want to see that. And even the ones that know that, well, okay, it's it probably is logically the best way to play if you you know assuming you're an elite footballer and you can do it, but it still makes you nervous and you still just want to see them boot it clear. Um, because, you know, we're nervous and anxious and invested when we watch our teams. And so I, I think this is another one of those things we get really, really, really worried about. And I think in reality, if you look at uh, basically, if you're one of the best players in Europe, you'll play 90 minutes every game. It's it's kind of that simple. Um, and and I guess what you could argue is that Saka is going to that level and therefore we should try and save him a bit now because when he's 21, he is going to be like, we are just not going to be able to play. It's going to be like Henri in the Invincibles (laughs) kind of season. Um, You know, maybe not quite that, but do you know what I mean? That kind of, right, we we just cannot play without this player. Um, Like like Salah and Mane, for example, um, you know, Liverpool, they tried to rotate them a little bit, actually, before Christmas until they got more injuries. But, you know, it's just like, you're fit, you play. Do you you think, though, it's just the missed opportunity? Like, like in this game, you say, you know, I can bring Martinelli off, on and Saka off, or or how about, like, the Leeds game when it was 4-1, you know, and you say, does he have to play 90 in that one? Like, there are moments you can still sneak some rest, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So I, I mean, and he and Saka was a, a really big part of the game plan here with the yeah. uh, not just kind of the marking Cancelo, but but also like getting in behind him because he wanders so much, and and we clearly had a plan to play through him. So and and I can't really think of anyone else who who do that job. I don't think Pepe or Martinelli would do that job. I I do. I guess I. I am surprised that he didn't come off in the last like 20, 25 minutes. Like I, I really think that, and this is what I was talking about earlier, like just for the sake of the gear change um, thing, you know, bring someone on who does something else, who gives a different problem rather than making this series of like, like for like subs and just doing the same thing and, and not really giving the team a new problem, but also in, in terms of resting him and because we can't rest him against Benfica, we can't rest him against Leicester. And if we go through against Benfica, then we're in a, you know, another round of Europa League ties. Like if we go where we want to in the Europa League, the end of the season is going to be very busy indeed. So um, I, I think, yes, you, you can question um, the decision maybe not to take him off, but it's difficult to do that without like actual data um, or inside knowledge at your fingertips. Yeah, and I want to be clear, by the way, I think there's some people that, <laughs> that's the wrong way to say it. I think there is sometimes a suggestion that the only reason you rotate or rest players is to avoid injury. And I think it should be pointed out that a big reason you rotate and rest players is for recovery time so they can reach peak performance again. The biggest obstacle to peak performance for elite athletes is recovery. Younger players recover quicker, which is an argument for not rotating Saka. Older players recover much, much slower, which might be an argument actually for rotating Aubameyang. You may want to get to the position where Aubameyang is a once a week player so he can play at peak performance. But again, it isn't just I'm predicting injury for Saka if he continues to play 90 minutes. It may be I'm predicting that he hits peak performance less frequently if he plays 90 minutes twice a week, every week. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that is really the question is, not so much, you know, will they break down, which is the big worry. But if you're getting less than peak performance, you say, is it worth playing them every game if I'm only getting a portion of performance? I mean, Clive, I don't want to shut you out of this conversation. It may not be the most interesting to you. So if you prefer to move on, we can. But I think it is a big talking point because 
you know, we are we are a team that found a little sliver of of success in our performances recently, and the manager seems reluctant to get away from what's worked. Um, and the one thing that has worked, pretty much without exception, is is Bukayo Saka. Yeah, it's very hard to to rest him, isn't it? Um, he, he, I agree with what Tim said there. I think the specifics of this day, this game. He was the man to do it. I'm, I'm not so worried about this game. There's been other games of these games, as you said, other games where I think it's an opportunity to take him off. I've got no problems with him not ending games. And you can see some of his passing in the final third of his shot selections. I mean, we hold him to a high standard, right? He's the youngest player in our team. He's the best player in our team at the moment. So we're holding him to a high standard. But we know when he's hot, when he's fresh, those shots and passes and decisions are crisp. That's what he does. He's very crisp, very secure, very accurate. Much like a City player, by the way. And um, Yeah, and Pep was message... full of praise for him, man. So get ready for us yeah. to try and knock him back that £80 million bid in the summer. It was, <laughs> but if the fans weren't so... They, they thought he was okay. The player they really liked was Tierney. Because they can see a weakness at left back. Where they've got a couple of sackers, if you know what I mean. They've got a few of those. But they haven't got a Tierney. And they really liked him. And so... A lot of people focusing on Saka today, but Tien is the one they really like. So watch out. Watch this space. By the way, I should mention, in, in a twist of irony, while I was doing my rant, uh, James Benj came out with a uh, story that PSG are coming in for Bellerin this summer. Um, after we knocked back a bid last summer, two years left on his contract, yeah. do you think he might move on? And honestly, maybe that's the best outcome for everybody, but my God, we would need to go for a right back at that point. Um, so yeah, don't let them people rattle your cage, mate. He's uh don't let them rattle your cage. Just leave it. You know, yeah. player judgments. You, you just can't win. Right. You know, even when I, even when I try and be gentle, I get it. So don't let them rattle no, your no. cage. And, and by the way, it's, you know, who cares if people are mean to me? It's more that I, I just think, you know, we should, we should always try to balance between objective analysis of a player and then being honest about, Hey, I like player X, and so I kind of have player X's back over player Y a little more. Sometimes it happens; it's part of the game. Um, well, indeed, Elliot, we yeah. should. Yes. If anyone yes. criticizes Patrick Vieira, by the way, I'm coming to that house. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. Um, well, well, let me do this. Let, let's move on to uh, a player that has come in for criticism, and I think it's hard because it's a player who maybe deserves it, but I'm not sure we've also really come to terms with the kind of player he is and what we have to accept from him, and that is. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Um, I'll stick with you, Clive, just for a minute more, and, and Paul, don't worry, I'll, I'll get you on this as well. There's a lot of criticism of Aubameyang in this game, you know, being soft, you know, kind of being pony in this game, yada, yada. I I unfortunately think that Aubameyang is a classic player who, when he is not popping up in the box on the end of moves that are goals or should be goals, he is a player you are just going to hate because I don't think there's much else in his game, especially when he's playing center forward. And so, because I trust him to score goals more than anyone else in our team, I want him playing. But the acknowledgement is you're going to get games like this from Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang because he's he's really a binary player. He's popping up in places to score goals or he's doing very little. Um, is that really just the analysis of him or do you have something far more erudite sophisticated that might make for good <laughs> hashtag content? I thought, full disclosure, when I saw the team named, I saw that front four, I thought, yes, this is what I want to see. I want to, let's have a look at it. Also, you haven't seen Odegaard start really in a big game. Let's see what he looked like. He flattered a little bit in this game. But the other three, I was really happy with. wasn't sure which side Saka and, and Pepe are going to play, but I thought, I can't wait. As the game went on, I thought, Clive, you idiot. Come on, man. This is an off-the-ball game. And Aubameyang is not an off-the-ball centre-forward. You know, we needed, we needed some... 
some absolute ability to hold that ball in that central phase. He wants to play one touch. He does not like being kicked. He does not like not knowing where the next kick's coming from. He likes to see things from the side. He likes to see his ability to get to places. He wants to see that spot, see the play developing, go off the mark quicker than his opponent and get there first. That's what he wants to do. He's all about freedom. He doesn't like to be kicked. And so Man City were quite clever. If you notice when they set the play to him, when we set the play to him, sorry, they didn't go tight to him. They didn't really kick him that much. What they did do was try to read his layoffs, knowing he'd play it in one touch. And then they would take it from there, and then they would spring on us. So the very first minute, he loses it. They don't really get too tight behind him, but they've covered all of his angles for a layoff. They've covered all his exit opportunities. What we need him to do is take it, be brave, turn around, and run them back. That would have shattered their whole game plan. That would have forced him to go back. But he's not that guy. Lacazette's not that guy neither, but at least he'll take the kick and we get a free kick. But hence, you look at this game, you want no, you want no centre forward we need. The centre forward who wants to get it doesn't mind being kicked, but can turn you around and run you as well. And he's not bad in the air in his box. That's the upgrade. That's the upgrade. It's just a game that didn't suit him. In hindsight, Lacazette should have played. You could have flipped it around. Mithra and Lacazette are a better combination for the Man City game. And for the Benfica game, Odegaard and Aubameyang is a better combination to a team with three guys at the back who can't run. The yeah. slicing passer goes through the line. So hindsight purely, when I saw team, I was happy with it. So Aubameyang, just a wrong day for him. And he allowed himself to be uh, phased out of the game mentally. Yeah, I, Paul, I mean, there's, there's a lot of annoyance and, and anger at, at Aubameyang. And I get it sort of, but I think this is the deal you make with this player. I, I think... He has days like Leeds and, and Benfica, the Leeds day where he gets into five goal-scoring positions and scores three. Days like Benfica where he gets into three or four goal-scoring positions and very rarely scores none, but on that day scored none. And then days like today where he's denied the chance to get into those positions and does the sum total of F all. And those days it's going to be easy to criticize him. But, you know, again, if you want a player, you're going to notice more Lacazette is that guy, but Lacazette's had multiple games recently where he's had zero shots. Um, it, I, I think ultimately... This is the bed we made when we signed this guy. We have a goal-scoring striker who does very little else. Is that is that okay with you? Sorry, yes. Um, I'm, I'm trying to be on mute control here. Um, yeah, screaming, I think that's screaming things at me on mute so you can get it out of your system. Yeah, yeah. Back. yeah. I'm all over the place today. Um, I look. I thought he was especially sloppy in this game, and then maybe it was just the level of attention he was getting from the other guys. But like. If he could spill it, he spilled it. Um, it is what you get with him, though. You're not going to get a lot of build-up play. He's not. He doesn't like banging up against two centre-backs or whatever, as Lacazette uh, has shown at least the willingness to suffer. Um, I mean, I guess what was the alternative is playing Lacazette, but, but I guess we're still not thinking about dropping Aubameyang, so then you'd lose Saka or Pepe. And on paper, like, I, Pepe got a lot of criticism, I think, for not doing anything. Uh, having looked at the game, I'm not sure what more he was going to... I mean, there's always something you can do, but I really think he was not given an opportunity to shine in this game. I've criticized him in many games before. Um, I think with the little scraps he got, he did what the best he could do. Um, but either way... You know, playing 
Uh, Lacazette through the middle means Aubameyang on the left, so Saka's gone. Maybe play Saka on the right, but we lose a lot of our our uh, our options we would have had uh, coming into this game. Um, so it's definitely what you get with Aubameyang. He's not. It's his running in between behind that's going to hurt them. It's the running into channels. And I think because we didn't have a good enough base until late in the first half, and I think maybe the early in the second half, we actually had a good period too. Those were the times to get in behind and to get Aubameyang into the channels. And for whatever reasons, we didn't cap- capitalize. But yeah, it is what you get with him. He's he. D- I mean, I, I think he's tougher than he looks. He looks like a a good time Charlie who doesn't get kicked, but. I think he just doesn't think it's playing to his strengths to do it. I, you know, I don't think it's a lack of... I think it's a choice by him. He's worked out he'd be a very average, getting beaten up by centre-backs kind of striker, and he's going to move away from them and take that movement away and then come back the other way with movement. And I think it, the major issue with him is a lack of quality in his touch. So, you know, he has games where you think, oh, hang on. He's not actually too bad at this hold-up play and the clever pl- pass, but it's not often enough. And this game was one of those where that part of his game didn't shine, didn't really shine for Odegaard either. And before you know, we're spill. You know, Hector misses a few. Before you know, we're we're spilling the ball all over the pitch and can't get up the side. And the for whatever reasons, the right-hand side really didn't produce, and everything that was good came up the left side with the left footers. Mm, yeah, I mean, you, you could make an argument that one thing that Aubameyang has feasted on, Tim, is is that, you know, that backside run, right? I mean, when the ball comes in from the right and he's able to find places in the box, and that certainly wasn't the case in this game. And some of that, some of, some of what's changing is is the way Odegaard plays a little bit. Um, I, I just want to touch on this super briefly before we, we move on to um, a last point and then look forward just really quickly. Tim, Odegaard is... I think you've always said this, right? That the guy who wins player of the month in August when seasons used to start in August is always the new signing, right? Um, I think Odegaard is a case of he comes in and everybody wants him to be brilliant. So everyone goes, oh, he's brilliant. He's a revelation. When in fact, he was really just good. Good. Nothing wrong with good. He was good. But maybe the he's brilliant, he's a revelation talk was kind of overstating it because everyone's just excited for his arrival. So then when people start to get a more sobering objective, look, and he's good. He's still good. He's just not spectacular. People were sort of disappointed. I mean, I thought Odegaard was kind of marginalized in this game. He didn't have a right-sided central mm-hmm. midfielder to get him the ball. Um, the right side in general just didn't function, and I thought when he had it, he was maybe a little sloppy. It's a really it's a really tough game, obviously, for every player out there on the pitch. And um, and I just I thought it was maybe a, a, a bad a bad situation for him and not an ideal performance with his, his limited moments. But do you think it's just a case of also maybe... <laughs> our expectations of what Odegaard is going to be in terms of the revelation were sort of the typical exaggerated expectations for a new signing and that we need to realize like he has to bet in a bit. He's a player who wasn't playing much this (laughs) season for Real Madrid that he can hit some really high levels, but you know, let's pump the brakes just a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think that's fair enough. And, and look, we, I don't think we have nearly enough um, data on him to, to really, yeah. To say anything other than like, he looks like a nice player like um and and that's kind of fine i also think with number 10 it's weird because i still think the expectations of what a number 10 does have kind of become a little bit skewed like um they're just like assisting 
you know, every 20 minutes, just like sliding someone through on goal. And that, that just doesn't happen anymore. Like teams don't play, like most teams don't just play with their, their defense on the halfway line. Like there was a video doing the rounds the other day. Um, Cause I think it was the 22, it was like 22 years to the day or something. A game I remember really, really well when Arsenal beat Leicester five nil and Anelka scored a hat trick. And when you look at it, like I remember on the day, cause I used to sit in the West lower and um, all the goals, well, four of the goals went in down my end. Um, and I, I just had like a really, really, really good look at them. And and honestly, when you look back at it, it's pathetic. Like, it's like, why did Leicester come to Highbury and put their defence on the halfway line against Bergkamp and Anelka? Like, what were they thinking? And um, and and that just doesn't happen anymore. Like, teams just don't don't really play like that. Like, I do think defences and structures are, are much more organised. So I think number 10s, have, like, they're different now. Like, you don't get, like, you know, I guess the Urzils and the Raquel Mays and, and players like that anymore. I think they are much more, you know, about pressing um, a lot of the time and winning the ball back and keeping things ticking over and being the spare man and everything. Like Everything I think Smith Rowe's done brilliantly. So in a, in a weird way, like we regard the number 10 position as a very glamorous one, but I think it's become quite unglamorous and it's almost become quite unsung. Um, in a weird way, even though we consider it like because kind of years ago, the number 10 used to play there because they were like a bit lazy and they were but they were brilliant. So you had to have them in the team. And so number 10 was just the place to put them where there was the least amount of responsibility, um, where they caused the least damage off the ball and the most damage on it. It was it was the optimum position. It's changed now. It's different. And, More uh, artist and I really, than artisan or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I really compare it to deep-lying playmaker. Like, mm. I mean, they're both playmaker roles. I think they've really both become like that. And it's it's as much about what you do off the ball and how you block passing lanes and press and, and knit things together. Like, I think it's it's much more of a thinking player's position now rather than just, oh, this guy's just got loads of talent to dribble and pass. And so I think our expectations of number 10s are quite weird anyway. And and I think Odegaard's look like a, a really nice, tidy player who looks like he can pull an assist out of the bag. But really what what we need and want him to do is to connect the team. I think he can do that. I think we've just got to learn to play with him. I, th- I think it's as simple as that. I think um, another couple of games and players will recognise, will understand the spaces he picks up and, and we'll just look for him a bit more. I, I think that's just the way with attacking players. It's a <clears throat> yeah. bit like when you pick a new striker. You, you can, know, can I ask you a question? Just learn to play with them. So sure. I was listening to the Arscast um, in an effort to write down all the things I should say on this podcast. And... Um, you know, one of the things they were talking about is what what would be needed this summer. And and Andrew made the point that, you know, we probably need to get another goal scorer because we don't score enough goals, which fair enough. But I would argue that like between Pepe and Martinelli and Saka and Obama, yep. like there should be goals there. I think yep. it's really fair to suggest that since Ramsey left, we just get absolutely some total of fuck all from midfield in terms of goal scoring. And mm-hmm. whoever that role is going to be, whether it's Odegaard or Smith Rowe or an other like a Bendia or an Awar, that position has to has to start providing some goals and some goal threat. It's, I think it's one of the reasons we were all mm-hmm. sort of trying to talk ourselves into Willock being a thing because there's a sense that Willock can crash the box and get goals. So, I mean, do you do you see that being a thing that maybe Smith Rowe will add to his game that Odegaard won't or Odegaard could if we buy him, but that, that ultimately for that position to succeed and Arsenal to go up a level, facilitating is great, and they've both done it, and they both – I mean, you can see we're better because of the role – of Smith Rowe and Odegaard in the four two three one, 
but does the next step in our evolution mean that that player is going to have to start adding goals? Yeah, and I'll give you a short answer. I, I don't know enough about Erdegaard to know whether he can do that. I do know about Smithrow. Smithrow can do that. Yeah, and I'm, to, yeah. I'm really certain we'll see that as the next step in his game. Yeah, um, when we had a pod about Smithrow coming in um, and we talked to our Huddersfield expert, like, yeah, he was very clear that Smithrow really beats himself up when he doesn't get in and get goals and he wants to get goals. And I, yeah, I, that's why I still think the future of that position is more Smithrow than Odegaard, just because I think he has more goal scoring in him. Paul's got to go. He's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. Woohoo. Woohoo. Uh, we'll finish up with just two quick things here. And Clive, one of them is just, it, it seems that the in vogue issue to have with Art uh, Arteta and by saying it's in vogue doesn't mean it's wrong, by the way. I'm just saying it's the one that people seem to have latched on to is substitutions. Patterns of them, timing of them, who they are. And this is a tough game to analyze substitutions because what are the odds you're going to do something that beats Manchester City? You know, it's just like, you know, good good luck. Um, anything you can throw on, they can throw on something better. But do you feel he waited too long? And are you a little surprised that he didn't use the opportunity to, to get some guys off or at a minimum... Um, you know, maybe change it a little more. By the way, I realized that in the chat you had uh, said you wanted to make a final point about Aubameyang, so feel free to to throw that in uh, now as well, because why not? Yeah, on, just quickly on Aubameyang. Yep. I think what City forced you to do, because there's so much pressure and there's so much mental pressure with the with the fact that they've got no numbers on the back of their shirt. If you're a defender or centre midfielder, you're seeing all this movement in front of you, crossing over, switching of zones, people going in behind, dropping short. There's all sorts of movement there. And something that Charles Watts said, something he says, watching it was just amazing in the ground, you know, watching the movement. So if you're an Arsenal player, you once you do get the ball, this is why I was quite defensive of El Nene earlier on, once you do get the ball, what you have to do is City force you to keep it really quickly, but also not your natural tendency. So we've got the ball, let's go forward. But I also showed quite a lot of patience. Right? And, and what City forced you to do is rest in possession. And that makes the build-up quite slow. And what does Aubameyang not like? Slow build-up, right? Mm-hmm. Because then he just stands still, freezes. What do I do now? When's this coming? Then we're back to pre-Christmas Arsenal. We don't know when the ball's coming forward, right? We can't get the ball. They come forward in slow phases. He wants it quick, nice and quick and direct, like we saw against Leeds. Very quick and direct. He was in, making runs. That's his type of game. So I think not every game suits you. It doesn't mean that Jamie Redknapp, that he's past his best. This game didn't suit him. It may have suited another forward. As simple as that, really. And on the substitutions, I don't really, I'm not a big deal with these. I think the selections, I think, of, when you look at these games, you've got to look at them in bunches almost. You're looking at this game, you're looking at Leeds, you're looking at Benfica, and you're looking at Benfica twice and Leicester. It's a series of games. And I, and I really feel he messed, I think he got the sort of Benfica away selection wrong, which bleeds into this game, which could bleed into the next Benfica game, and we could cost us versus Leicester. It really could. And I think he should have made the changes against Benfica away, have far more forwards up top. So you could have got Smith Rowe into this game, because I think it was a midfielder's game. 
bringing him on with the last 10 minutes going, what's he going to do? What's the bias going to do in two minutes? Like I said, I think you could see... You know, can he... do a lot of things in two minutes, but the less said, the better. <laughs> oh, 25 <laughs> seconds, mate. Uh, so Lacazette... Like <laughs> do it twice? Um, um, Lacazette, like just by him getting fouled and slowing the game down, that sort of made me think, you know what, maybe you'd have been silly today. But I, I don't know. I think we just have to just take it on the chin, right? And, I, and I'm... I'm not defeatist when I say this because I think we're going to win every game and then suddenly there was a few clips of City's goals against us in previous years. It suddenly dawned on me that they're actually quite good. This actually could be one of the best teams he's put together full stop. I never thought he would do another unique thing but he seems to have done it again. And what he's really done is built his team on, on defensive solidity and and that's taken away all of the vulnerability. Forget how they scored a million goals before. Now they're not conceding anything. And they're not just counterfeiting. They can defend close to their goal as well. This is this is a really big concern for everybody. And what they do happens when they do get a centre forward. So while we're worried about the minutes into a 19-year-old's legs, I'm worried about Aubameyang, if he's you know a, a non-loan Real Madrid midfielder, how many touches he had. We've got, we're just a mile away. And I don't think it's a big deal. I think Tim's point earlier about Arsenal having a change of gear, I think that's a big deal. I think potentially what we can do with the players on the pitch, systemically, do we need to change things? I know people don't like the truth three at the back, but I, I don't mind it and using that change of system. But there's also people that say, you know what, if you found this 4 let's make that better. Let's keep building on that. Let's make us a really good 4-2-3-1 team with good habits. And where we are in our development, I sort of get that too. So um, I'm not sure, Elliot, what he could have done on this particular day. But I do I do tend to agree with your sort of premise. It's a weakness of his. I think he's a little bit slow on occasion. And it's been a consistent weakness since he's come on board. Yeah, I mean, one of the hard things to do as a manager, obviously, is to say, I'm going to prioritize. I know, Tim, you don't, you don't think they should do that. But I think if you look at it and you say, Benfica City, Benfica Leicester, you could say... No matter what I do, if I go as strong as possible against City, I could still lose. It's just, it's I will likely lose. The odds would say, you know, maybe 15% of the time you're going to get a result. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to just kind of grudgingly, not accept defeat, but grudgingly rotate in players who are fresh and see what they can do against City with the idea that, I have to get a result against Leicester and Benfica. Leicester, I need it because if I have any hope to keep top six, and dare I say top four, as silly as that sounds, alive, I can't lose both of these games. And I've got to get through in the Europa League. And so that's how I'm going to prioritize it. So that would be my only thing. I mean, I, it's hard, but you can rotate without saying you're accepting defeat. I mean, if you're saying you're accepting defeat by rotating, you're essentially saying my team is crap, um, which, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe the case. Tim, let, let's finish it this way, though. Let's look ahead to Benfica. So I have been, maybe surprisingly, of the opinion that Mikel Arteta deserves huge credit for this turnaround in our performances. Some people would say, what turnaround? We lost to Wolves, we lost to Villa, we lost to City. I am in the unusual position of being the more sanguine, optimistic one who says, I think we are clearly playing better, and since Chelsea, he has a team set up, playing good football, that's kind of getting it done at both ends, maybe still not quite executing as well in the final third as we need to to put teams to the sword. But by and large, when you look at what we were in November, December, and you look at what we are now, they're, they're unrecognizable. Unrecognizable. And I think Mikel Arteta deserves huge credit for that. The problem is Mikel Arteta is most likely, even if the team continues to play well, going to wind up with a team that finishes somewhere around 7th, 8th, 10th, 6th if he's super lucky. It's not great. And so that leads us to the Europa League. 
Tim, I'm not sure I believe that anything should just be a hard and fast rule. But if Arteta can have non-negotiables, the club can too. And for me, getting knocked out in the first <laughs> round of the Europa League knockout rounds in consecutive seasons is a non-negotiable. You know, if you want to be the optimist and see the progress in the way we're playing under Arteta, God bless you, I do too. And if you're willing to tolerate it a ninth or eighth place finish because you see the progress, again, God bless you, I might be willing to also. But if that also comes with another exit at this round of the Europa League to inferior opposition, Tim, I don't, I don't know... I don't know if my rageometer can can allow that. So <laughs> I'll just be honest. I, I think this is a, I mean, I hate to say it, but a job-defining game on Thursday for Arteta. Is that mm-hmm. my typical hyperbole? No, I, I completely agree. And I'm, I'm with you in terms of almost never would I say, you know, a manager's future should hinge on one game um, just because it's, you know, it's not like that. Like, I, I just don't think things are, are that cut and dried. And, you know, it, it's like that. Was it the paradox of the heap or something? Like, how many individual grains of sand do I put in my hand before they become a heap? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like one isn't, two isn't, three isn't. What's that magic number where it becomes a heap? Um, but I, I, I'm with you on this because basically the league season is is it's not quite gone. Um like we can still fight for six as exciting as that sounds, but I mean, it's, it's as close to damn it. And, and look, even if you think we've improved recently, I mean, I, we have improved recently. I think that's kind of undeniable, but at the same time we've improved from a really lo- like we've gone from, I think a team that looks like it would finish about 14th, 15th to a team that could maybe finish fifth or sixth. Um, you know, if that, maybe six or seventh, which, which is yeah, we're still not suddenly not... playing title, title cowardable football. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's still not good enough. And it's still, we still don't assert ourselves on teams enough. And we're still, every game is pretty much in the balance. And I always think that that'll lead you to mid table, um, essentially. And so like there, there are a lot of things I still have quite big doubts about, um, to be honest, but I, I kind of agree with you. If, if, if we lose on Thursday, like that really is season over, I think, because I wouldn't see this team recovering from that by going on a massive run and finishing sixth. And then what? We're in the Europa League again next season. Well, then what kind of thing? I, I, I'd clarify by saying I do not think the club will sack him regardless of what no, happens I, on, I'm not asking that. on Thursday. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, whether they should that, or that not. Would require there, that would require there to be any leadership or any direction or any understanding. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, yeah, whether the, yeah, exactly whether they should or not, I don't think they will. But I, I think this is an absolutely defining game for Arteta. Like I, I feel a lot of people are maybe on the precipice. I'd say I'm kind of still on that precipice, but I'm probably, if you put a gun to my head, more on the. I don't think this guy can take us where we need to go. Than like I, I just don't see enough of it. Um, to be honest, I, 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 I don't think we'll ever get higher than six under Arteta that and and look I'm forecasting there because he might end up with a better squad and then we'll see what he does with a better squad and blah 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 so I'm not absolutely hot for him to be sacked at the moment but if we lose on Thursday then um let, let's say if we if he if we lose on Thursday and the club sacked him on Friday I would not raise any objection put it that way yeah and and I mean, it sounds so harsh, but like I said, there have to be some non-negotiables for the club too. Um, you take, we we all have sympathy for for the guy because we like him, or or maybe you don't, you know. And and none of us want to be totally knives out, I think. But 
there are certain things you have to do when you take the big job. One of them is you have to get past the first knockout round of the Europa League. like, And you certainly have to do it once in two seasons, um, even accepting the challenge of last season and why it was unique. So I, I do think this is an inflection point. Um, you know, I think if you... You know how... Clive, you ever play FIFA? You know how the players have different like ratings, like speed, agility, shooting, passing. Like if Arteta had three coaching things, and it was like coaching, man management, transfer market awareness. I think his coaching, I might give him a nine or ten out of ten. You know, I mean, he 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 can coach. There's no question. As far as like the man management and the transfer market awareness, like those things are questions that are going to get answered in time. But those are the ones I still have big big questions over. Having said that, I'll finish with you. How do you feel about Tim and I being prepared to get the pitchforks out, bin bags out, you know, light, light, light the torches, get the bin bags, you know, march the banner, hire the plane. How do you feel about us doing that if Thursday doesn't go well, or is it not worth thinking about because we are going to absolutely smash them? Yeah, let's hope we smash them. But you know, I think if you link back to the the uh, other Benfica game, I was very upset about that game because I felt we missed an opportunity, and those are games to get upset about, not not Sunday. Um, if he get if he loses at the week and on Thursday, he's in the washing machine. Doesn't matter what you guys think, he's back in the Arsenal washing machine. And I tell you what, then Twitter's going to go absolutely ballistic and quite deservedly. One thing I've learned from my sort of non-league world, I go into now: investment and budgets really do count. You know, the teams with the biggest budgets, with the pay the most wages, tend to be the teams at the top of the league. So, you know, and that's all the way up the non-leagues, for example. And it happens at the biggest leagues. Arsenal's budget and revenues is bigger than Benfica's. It's bigger than Wolves. It's it's bigger than Villa. It's bigger than Leicester. You know, it's we've got better revenues and we're not utilising it. That is a shame. So we're going for a fiscal reset. And that's obviously was shown in January and no doubt continuing the summer. I'm sure the club are on a different life cycle than what we are. But will they be able to survive that life cycle if we don't go, if we go out? They probably will just brush it to one side and continue with the, with the project. But he's in the washing machine then. And I can't, I can't, <laughs> I wouldn't want to stand in the way of that because that would be two, two years on the trot, right? And in the end, you're a football manager and you are judged on results. And there are some results which are okay, and there are some results which are not okay. And Benfica losing to them would, is a not okay result. Mm. I mean, because it's so tough, right? I mean, guys, if you squint hard enough and hard enough and hard enough, you can see anything in anything. No manager is totally terrible or totally perfect. No player is either. There is a threshold below which you got to stop seeing the positives, Right? I mean, that's what it boils down to. There is a th- No matter how much we like the guy, no matter how much we think he's got it, there's a threshold below which you just, you can't roll those dice anymore. I mean, it's billion-dollar industry. You know, the, you can't roll the dice for forever. So I hope we're not having this discussion come Thursday. I, I, I don't think we will, but yeah, final thought. I've got one more thing. Yeah, okay, but well, I, you know what? Well, as we roll into hour two, hour three, keep going. What, <laughs> what do you think, Tim? <laughs> So I was just going to say quickly, like, I don't think people have really grasped the impact of COVID on the club's finances. They're still laying people off. If we're not in Europe next season or we're in that fucking stupid conference league, you know, that that's going to be bad. That's going to be really bad. And not just for prestige reasons. This is a critical time where we cannot not be in Europe and if they're not in Europe next season then that could have a really big impact over the next five years minimum 
Yeah. Well, five. Your, uh, your final thought before Tim's final thought. Well, before your I've, got, I've got a bit. My, my view is a bit more footballistic. I, I think Tim's right when he says that. I don't agree that it's everything, um, but I do agree that investment is everything. Aston Villa are investing more than us right now. It's, it's simple. Are we talking stonks? Because I'll talk some stonks. No, not stonks. Okay. <laughs> no, no. You know, they're investing. I spent 200 million, whatever it is, in the last two seasons. They're investing and they're above us in the league right now. And and so there is going to be a point. Frank Lampard lost his job, not as a Chelsea manager, but he lost his job as 222 million Chelsea manager. Once they invested and he didn't get the results, the, the bar changed. He was done. There needs to be, there's a bit of a fiscal you know, cost cutting exercise right now. There needs to be investment. And Tim will say, well, you know what? We need Europe for that investment. And I can't say he's wrong. Personally, it needs to be investment outside of our sustainable model for us to reset properly. That's what really needs to happen. And that needs to happen, particularly in this market. It needs to happen when financial fair play is not being looked at in the same way. You're looking around the world. There's an opportunity here. We need to seize it. Clean house first, seize it. And that's when we need some proper leadership and ownership. So if that happens, then, then we need to be judging our club appropriately. Otherwise, we're just going to bumble along without the investment, looking at substitutions. And that's not that's not the future I want, right? So we need to invest and not just invest with air quotes, really investing in young players to, to force the future of this club. Really important. Yeah, well said. Should we leave it there, guys? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> no, no one even has any words to say left anymore. Okay. Um, so here we go. Uh, my name is Elliot Smith. You can me on Twitter. And Gunnar Tim's on Twitter. Mr. Berto, thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. We owe the patrons a mailbag, so we'll probably have a mailbag pod this week. We should be able to sneak in our Premier League roundup because we do need to do a pod about how bad things are at Tottenham. I think that is very important. Of, uh, I think we're going to do a live stream again for the pregame of the Europa League tie because that, that was fun last week, and we got to smile, we got to laugh, and it didn't all have to be so serious all the time, which was, was fun. So we'll try to do that again, then the instant reaction, then a full pod. Lots to come, lots more to do. We love you so much. Thank you for being here. You um, make it all bearable. Is, is what I will say. And uh, you have no idea how much that means. In any event, fingers crossed, everybody. We love you, and we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10, Benfica nil. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.